I encourage you to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 is where we will be today. Exiles to the end, believing in God's power. I did a little survey during Sunday school, and I went to our students, and I asked them a question. Well, I was just going to ask them one question, and then after I asked it to the first group, I realized I had to ask a question before that question to the rest of them. Because my original question was, what are you doing, what do you think about that helps you endure to the end of this semester and into the Christmas break? And the first answer I got was, I don't want school to end. I want to stay in school. I like to learn. So then I had to have two questions for the rest of my survey. Question number one was, are you ready for Christmas break? (laughs) And to that, most of them responded yes. And then I followed it up with that original question. So what are you doing to make it to the end? What do you think about to make it to the end? I got some different answers. Um, One said, knowing that I'm going to get to skip out early. (laughs) So... (laughs) Okay, that works. Uh, Maybe you don't have to go all the way to the end. That keeps you going forward. Uh, Some said looking forward to fun activities. Uh, One said knowing that a break is at the end of the tunnel. That was a pretty good answer. Uh, One said this, and you can probably guess that this wasn't a student but a teacher, prayer. Prayer will get me to the end of the semester. And then one said this, when you're done... You don't have to do any more of that stuff for a while. <laughs> that was probably my favorite answer. When you're done, you don't have to do to, to know To know that a break is coming, a break from the suffering, if you will, of all of that schoolwork. Well, there are some, these are some ways that our students and teachers endure to the end of the semester. In our passage of Scripture today, we find the Apostle Peter sharing with suffering Christians some things that they can do to endure to the end. Some ways that they can endure to the end. Not to the end of a semester of school, but to the end of their lives, to the return of Christ, whichever comes first, in that moment where they are ushered in to the eternal glory of Christ. How do we endure as Christians to the end? So if you will, follow along as I read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask and we pray Father, that you would work in our hearts during this time where we open up your word and we just seek to learn and grow from your precious word. Father, your word is enduring. Father, it is eternal. 
Father, it never changes. And it is powerful. It is alive and active. It has the ability to pierce deep into our hearts and souls. To teach us. To convict us. Father, to rebuke us. To to train us for righteousness. To encourage us. To equip us. So, Father, we pray that your word, accompanied by your spirit, would do that in our hearts today. Father, we give this time to you. Would you use it for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today in this passage, we learn this, that persevering as an exile requires believing in God's power to sustain you to the end. Persevering as an exile requires that we... That we Depend on, really believe in God's power to sustain us to the end. Now, if you'll recall throughout our study of 1 Peter, we have learned that he's writing to suffering Christians. He calls them elect exiles. They are chosen by God to belong to God and not to belong to this world anymore. And these exiles not belonging to this world, but living in this world, experience suffering. And if we as Christians are living out the calling that God has placed on our lives, that is, we are doing good deeds even in the face of evil, and we are sharing the hope of the gospel with other people, then we will face suffering for Christ. Peter calls it suffering for righteousness sake. And as we get towards the end of this letter, we see that he's just helping them persevere to the end. How do you stay faithful? How do you remain exiles to the end? He said in the end of chapter 4 that one of the ways we do that is by trusting in God's sovereignty. That God is sovereign over our suffering. And then in the first part of chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we saw that a way that we are we remain exiles to the end. A way we persevere is by participating in God's church. God has given us the church. He's given us leaders in the church, elders. He's given us one another so that together, together we persevere to the end. Now, today in this passage, verses 6 through 11, we see that believing in God's power, believing in God's power to sustain us through the end is one of the ways that we will remain exiles to the end, that we will remain faithful to the Lord no matter what comes our way. I want to share with you three ways that Christians are called to exercise ongoing belief in God's power as they suffer for Christ. Number one is this, with humility, with humility, believe in God's power to care for you through suffering. With humility, believe in God's power to care for you through suffering. Notice verses 6 and 7 in this passage. Peter writes this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now, if you remember, and you can just look back one verse, we ended the last passage last week with this theme of humility. Just glance back to verse 5. It says, Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he speaks to everyone in the church. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is one of those places in Scripture where it's kind of a, a, a new section, but in a way it's just a continuance from the previous section. He kind of shifts gears, but he's still headed in the same direction. And so we think about this, this topic of humility, this call to be humble. Why would he be calling people to be humble? Why don't you to notice that we need humility to accept suffering as a part of God's plan. 
Have you ever thought about that? One of the ingredients in our lives, if we're going to accept suffering as a part of God's plan, remember the end of chapter 4 was trusting that God is sovereign over our suffering. Well, if we're going to do that, we have to humble ourselves before God. Notice this phrase here where he says, Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God. Peter is reaching back into the Old Testament as he's done over and over and over in this letter. For, and reaching back in there for this, this phrase, the mighty hand of God. This phrase is rarely used in the New Testament, but it is used over and over in the Old Testament. And it's always used to refer to God's powerful saving purposes for his people. God's powerful saving purposes for his people is often used primarily in the context of God delivering the people of Egypt from slavery. Um, uh, people, not the people of Egypt. People of Israel... Let me start over. I don't know what I just said. God delivering the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. All right, there we go. That's the context in which it's used. For instance, Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, where Moses is um, getting instructions from the Lord uh, about the coming deliverance of his people. And God, uh, God says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And then in Exodus 32, verse 11, after the Exodus has already taken place, we find this, this phrase, Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand. And so when Peter uses this phrase, the mighty hand of God, he wants his readers to think about God's powerful saving purposes, that he is mighty and he is powerful to save. Well, why would he want them to, to think about that in light of suffering and being humble? Well, if I believe in God's power to save me, then I ought to be able to trust in his sovereignty over my suffering. If I'm willing to believe that God is powerful enough to save me, then I ought to be willing to believe that he is in control over the suffering that I experience. And in God's powerful plan, humility is that way to exaltation. Because suffering is the way to exaltation. Remember, we've seen this in Peter, that suffering is the path to exaltation. But if I'm going to be willing to accept that from the Lord, I have to humble myself. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. This call to be humble with this humility that leads to exaltation, Peter is not only borrowing here from the Old Testament, he's also borrowing from the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, we find Jesus uh, really rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees because they walked around with their noses stuck up in the air and they wanted people to notice them. And he says this, whoever to them, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Later on, Jesus tells this story uh, about this wedding feast. And there, this, this guy comes in and he takes the seat of honor. But then someone more honorable than him comes in and he's asked to get up and go to a lower seat. What, what, what is Jesus' point? You try to exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. But Jesus ends that story with these words. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then you know the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They both go to pray, and the Pharisee basically says, Wow, look at me, God. I'm not like that sinner over there. And the tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And you know what Jesus says at the end of telling that story? He says this, 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's plan in his kingdom, that the humble will be exalted. We've seen suffering as a pathway to exaltation, and here we see humility as a pathway for exaltation because humility and accepting suffering under God's sovereignty for the cause of Christ go hand in hand. Here's the thing. Without humility, we will either blame God for our suffering or we will retaliate against those who are the human agents of our suffering. And both of those things are things that God has called us not to do, that Peter has called his readers not to do. In other words, we will not, without humility, accept suffering as a part of God's plan. One writer said this. I love how how she worded this. She said this. The command to be humbled under God's mighty hand is a command to accept, though not to seek, difficult circumstances as a part of God's deliverance. Neither railing against God, saying, why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Nor raging against those causing the difficulty, but rather blessing those who insult and injure. She did a fabulous job of really going back and summarizing all that Peter has talked about in this letter and then putting in the context of this call to humility. Passage that was read at the beginning of our service today. Beautiful passage known as Mary's Song. And there in Mary's Song, we see Mary having this same attitude. She knew she knew the path of exaltation was the path of humility. She responded with humility to the news that she would bear a son which would probably be a cause for ridicule in her life since she was not married. But she knew that how God responds to the humble is with exaltation. Just a reminder of one of those verses from that song that was read at the beginning of the service. She says this, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. How was Mary able to accept this news that something was happening in her which was really incredible but was going to be a cause of suffering in her life? She accepted it with humility. Now, we need humility not only to accept the suffering, but we need humility to trust God rather than worry when we face the suffering. Again, Peter borrows from the Old Testament here in verse 7 when he says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He's going back to Psalm chapter 55. And there in Psalm chapter 55, we have the enemies coming against the writer of this psalm. And he says this. It's a great psalm. Go back and read it. It's 23 verses long, so I'm not going to read it right now. But I'm going to read verse 22. There in that psalm where where the, 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 the writer is undergoing suffering... He says this, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. How is he going to walk through this suffering? It's by remembering that God is faithful to his people. He is faithful to the righteous and we are righteous in Christ. And so Peter borrows from that language. So in our humility, we cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Listen, our suffering provides an opportunity to either worry or trust in God. Anytime we experience suffering, any kind of suffering in our lives, And, of course, we know here the suffering that Peter is talking about is suffering for the cause of Christ, for the name of Christ. When we experience suffering, it's an opportunity. It's either an opportunity to worry or it's an opportunity to trust God. 
And worry is sinful. Worry is sinful because it is a choice to trust in myself rather than God. Worry is simple because it is evidence of a lack of trust in God's sovereignty over the situation. It's an evidence of a lack of trust in God's power to handle the situation. It's a lack of trust in God's care for me during and after the situation. Worry really is a form of pride. You say, where is the worry coming from in my life? I think if we were going to trace it back, the root of worry is pride. Because we're not trusting God, we're trusting ourselves. Someone said it this way, worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all of life. So here's the thing. If I can trust in God's power, mighty power to save me, then I ought to be able to trust that he is sovereign over my suffering. And if I can trust that God is sovereign over my suffering, then I can come to him with the burdens created by the suffering. If I can trust that he's in control, then I ought to be able to trust that he can take care of it, that he can bring me through. When you've experienced the mighty hand of God in saving you, then you certainly can trust the mighty hand of God to sustain you no matter what you walk through in this life. But while God is caring for us, Satan is attacking us. So while we rest in the tender care that God provides, we also fight against the schemes of the devil. Truth number two we see is this. With awareness... Believe in God's power to protect you from temptation with awareness or you can put alertness or you can put vigilance, whatever word you want to use there. Believe in God's power to protect you from temptation. Verse eight and nine says this, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here we have a call to be on guard, to wake up, have our eyes open, and be alert. In fact, this is the third time in this letter that Peter has called us to be sober-minded. Don't have your mind clouded in such a way that you then fall prey to the schemes of the devil. Be alert. Have your mind open so that you can see the attacks Before they get to you, be ready, be watchful. Why? Because we have an enemy. In the previous passage, God's people were called sheep. And here we find that there is a lion that wants to come into the flock and wreak havoc and cause destruction. Cause us to turn away from our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. What in the world does this have to do with suffering? Is Peter just throwing some random things out there at the end of this letter? Oh, I, I wanted to mention a few more things. that don't really have anything to do with everything else I've talked about. So here's some words about Satan. No, this fits right into the context of Christians who are experiencing suffering for the cause of Christ. Satan wants to use our suffering against us. It's one of the tools that he would use in our lives. He wants to tempt us 
to turn our backs on God in order to escape the temporary suffering of this life. Someone said this persecution is the roar by which he, Satan, tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. In other words, Satan wants us to go, man, look at that person over there. He's not having to suffer for Jesus. In fact, he's popular. She's rich. They seem to be having so much fun. Look at the pleasure that they're enjoying. And I'm over here suffering for the cause of Christ. That is the voice of Satan. That is the roar of a lion who is our adversary. Sin is pleasurable. It is, but only for a short while. And in the end, it leads to destruction. Jesus said that the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. Glance back at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. This is the the tension that we live in where, where we live among people who are living for the world And yet we are called to live differently. Remember what he said in chapter four, verse three, he said, for the time that is past suffices or is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And there he's using the word Gentiles to refer to unbelievers living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So, so here's the situation. You have a believer who is suffering for Christ. You have these other people over here who not only are they not suffering for Christ, they look like they're having loads of fun in the process of not following Jesus. And so the temptation would be to go back to our former way of life that he said in chapter one, we have been ransomed from by the precious blood of Christ. And so we have to deal with this temptation that Satan throws in our faces. Is it worth suffering for the cause of Christ? And our answer must be yes, because look at verse 5 of chapter 4. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The sensuality and the debauchery debauchery and the drunkenness and, and then whatever else, whatever sin you want to put in there. It may be pleasurable for a short time, but in the end, it leads to destruction. And so we have to stay on guard. He comes to seek us to devour us. We must take temptation seriously in our lives. But here's the good news. The devil may roar, but the roar can be resisted. It's just a roar. It's not a bite. All he's trying to do is scare us into sin. But in Christ... He can do nothing to us. Notice that next command in verse nine. Be aware, but then resist, resist him firm in your faith. Be aware and be resistant. This word resist is an action word. How do we resist Satan? Well, we use God's word. We use prayer. We do what Paul said in Romans chapter six. We put on the armor of God, which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We could summarize how we resist by that next phrase, firm in your faith. How do we resist 
It is by faith because you and I don't have the power in and of ourselves to resist Satan. But Jesus does. And so it is through our faith in him and his ability and his power to protect us that we are able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. If it's through faith, then God is the one who is actually doing the work. He is the one who gives us the ability to resist the devil through his spirit in us so that ultimately he is our protection because he not only is sovereign over our suffering, he is sovereign over Satan. God has all the power, not the devil. First John chapter four, verse four says this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so we are watchful. We resist him through faith, continuing to believe in God's power to protect us. And then he gives one more before he goes on to the final truth. He gives one more little uh, uh, message of encouragement for them. Notice what he says at the end of verse nine. He says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So not only do we want to be aware and not only want to resist, be resistant, but we also want to be connected to God's people and be reminded that we're not alone. The more we see ourselves not only as belonging to God, but also as belonging to one another as Christians, the more encouragement we'll be able to draw from others who are suffering for Christ. Remember, suffering is the normal thing for Christians. It's often hard for us to remember that in the society in which we live. In various places around the world, suffering is normal. And so when we remember that, it will help us not feel abnormal when we suffer for Christ. And thus feel alone in our suffering. We're not alone. There are others who are suffering as well. We can draw encouragement from that. But here's the good news. Here's here's the good news. Lest we think that God has sentenced us to an eternity of having to humbly endure suffering. And unless we think that God has sentenced us to an eternity of having to vigilantly resist temptation, Peter reminds his readers at the end of this passage that they are living in a temporary state between God starting salvation in them and God finishing salvation in them. And he will finish it. And it is that finished state of salvation in which suffering and temptation are no more. Remember the student who said, I'm looking forward to not not having to do what I once did. And that's the that's the hope that we have. There is this day coming where we no longer have to cast our cares upon him and our anxieties and our worries and and humbly accept suffering because there will be no more suffering. There's coming a day where we no longer have to resist temptation and be aware that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion because that roaring lion will be caged up in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And that's what Peter says here at the end where we get to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And so truth number three finally is this with confidence, with confidence, Christian, you want to be an exile to the end with confidence. Believe in God's power to finish your salvation. Believe in God's power to finish your salvation. He says in verses 10 and 11, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have to understand this about salvation. Salvation has a past, a present, and a future sense to it. 
There's this past salvation that Peter has talked about in this letter. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 2, verse 9, he says that God chose us for salvation. That's in the past. In chapter 1, verse 3, he said that God caused us, that's in the past, caused us to be born again through faith in Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 18, past tense, he says, and he ransomed us. Past tense. It's not Christmas break yet, students. We've got to do a little grammar, right? But that ED on the end, he ransomed us. That's the past sense of salvation. What about in the present? Well, God is saving us right now. If you are a follower of Jesus in chapter one, verse six through seven. And in chapter four, verse 12, we learn that God right now is purifying us. He's saving us from ourselves, from our sin through the trials that we walk through. In chapter two, verses 11 through 12, we see that we God is spreading his glory to others through our resistance to sin and through our good deeds in the face of persecution. God is at work in our lives, Christians. And so in the present, he is saving us just as in the past he has saved us. But guess what? That's not all. There's a future salvation. And he has talked about this. Peter has talked about this in his letter. In chapter three, verse five, we see that God reveals our salvation one day. It's coming in the future. And in chapter three, verse nine, one day he will give us salvation. There it says obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That one day we will obtain that. Salvation is past, it is present, and it is future. And here's the good news. The hope of what awaits us in the future helps us endure in the present. Salvation here is described as God calling you to His eternal glory in Christ. You ever thought about salvation that way, Christian? God calling you to His eternal glory in Christ. Oh, what a beautiful way to think about our salvation. Listen, God has called us to some other things in the present. We've seen this calling phrase a couple of times in First Peter already. In chapter 2, verse 21, we see that I'm called, we are called to endure suffering for doing good. He says, to this you have been called, to endure suffering for doing good in the present. In chapter 3, verse 9. He says that we are called, he uses that word, we are called to bless those who speak evil about us. But listen, those are the temporary effects of God's call to salvation. The eternal effect is enjoying the beautiful inheritance that he says in chapter 1 is being kept in heaven for us until the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, when God calls us to his eternal glory in Christ, we can rest assured, Christian, that he will get us there. That's the hope of the gospel. That is God's power over our salvation to start it, to work it out in our lives right now and to finish it one day. God will finish our salvation in his timing. Notice there this theme of the timing. He says that in verse six, at the proper time, he may exalt you here in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. It's in God's timing. I love Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Christ Jesus. When will that be? I don't know. You don't know. But we can trust in God's timing to finish our salvation. How does he finish our salvation? Not only in his timing, but by his grace. Notice how God is described here. The God of all grace. The God of all grace. Christians, you know what that means? It means that God gives you unmerited favor. He shows you favor that you 
don't deserve. You and I don't deserve for God to start salvation in us, and we definitely don't deserve for God to finish salvation in us. Our salvation, past, present, and future, is only by His grace. God does the calling and the finishing through Jesus Christ. Notice those words, He Himself. He Himself will do what? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter just joins four words together just to lay word after word after word after word, like brick after brick after brick in a building, to build this foundation in our minds of what is coming. That day is coming where we will be restored, where sin will be no more, where suffering will be no more. He will strengthen us in that day to live with Him forever. We will be established never to be moved from our eternal home with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Forever and ever. Why does He do this? Why does God do this? For you? For me? Kind of. Yes. But ultimately, He does it for His glory. That's why it's by His grace. The one who does the work gets all the glory. And so Peter ends this passage in verse 11 with this doxology, with this hymn of praise. He says, To Him be the dominion. Forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the Lordship. To Him be the rulership. He is King forever and ever and ever. Amen. He gets to the end after thinking about the eternal glory that is coming for us, that God will finish our salvation, and He can't help but do anything else but break out into worship for the Lord our God. To Him belong the dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. God has called us to an eternal glory in Christ. But I wonder for you today, is there a past to your salvation? Is there a present to your salvation? Is there a coming future for your salvation? Or perhaps there is no salvation in your heart and in your life today. Maybe you read these words and you say, The roar of the devil has turned into a bite for me. I'm falling prey to him in my life. There's sin in my life. And I'm living in it. And I don't have the hope of eternal glory with Christ. If that's you today, can I tell you that you don't have to stay there? You don't have to stay under the bite of the devil. There's a God who cares for you. He is a God of all grace. And He is ready and He is willing to apply the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin, to apply that to your heart and life, to wash you clean from your sin, to start that salvation in you, and then He will finish it one day. And He's ready to do that today. It's a free gift. Say, how do I have that? How do I have the blood of Christ applied to my life This is what we talked about. It's through faith. It's through believing. Jesus said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he just? He just worshiped Jesus for having dominion forever and ever and ever. And what does Jesus say? How we should respond to his lordship and rulership to the fact that he is king? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and trust that when Jesus died on the cross, it was enough to rescue you from your sin. It was enough 
to sustain you to the end through whatever suffering may come your way. It was enough to keep the roar of the lion at bay until that day when you stand in the presence of God, welcomed into his presence forever and ever and ever. Listen, if you are not on your way to an eternal glory in Christ, you can be today if you trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christian, are you daily trusting in God, in his power to sustain you to the end? Listen, he can do it. He can do it. He can do it. That's what Peter's saying. He can do it. We just have to keep trusting in him. God is powerful to care for you through suffering. So humble yourselves before him daily, Christian. God is powerful, Christian, to protect you from temptation. So live with awareness and resistance. And God is powerful to finish your salvation. So be confident, Christian. Be confident in what is coming. Eternal glory in Christ. Joy to the world that Christ has come. Joy to the world that He's coming back one day. Joy to the world, to everyone who has called upon the name of Jesus for salvation. Eternal glory in Christ. Let's live with that, the forefront of our minds, every moment of every day. Christian, be encouraged. Remain in exile to the end. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the hope of the gospel in our lives. Father, we thank you that you have sent your only son to this earth to be a sacrifice for sin. Father, otherwise there would be no language of being born again. There would be no language of us being ransomed from our futile ways of life. There would be no language of us having been changed, of us being able to humble ourselves before you. There would be no, no, no language of us being able to resist the, 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 the roar of Satan and his bite as he would seek to tempt us. Father, there would be no language of us entering into your glory one day, Father, because we are sinners and we are separated from you because of our sin. But we thank you that you are a God of grace. And in your grace, you have provided a way of salvation. Past, present, and future. You are over our salvation, Father. And you will see us through to the end if we will keep trusting in you day after day after day. Father, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. Lord, in the next few minutes, if there's someone here who you're working in their heart and life, Father, you're calling them to some, some decision in their life, Father, I pray that they would just be obedient. Father, maybe today someone needs to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. They know that what's coming for them is not eternal glory in Christ, but eternal destruction separated from Christ. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation in their hearts and lives as they surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, maybe there's someone today who has not been casting their cares upon you. They know you, they love you, they've been saved by you, but they're trying to hang on to their worries and the issues in their lives, Father, and they're not casting those things upon you. They're not trusting you. There's pride in their hearts, and today they need to repent of that. Father, maybe there's an area of, of someone's life where they're, they're, they're succumbing to the, to the roar of that lion. Father, they're letting sin creep into their life in some way, shape, or form, and today they need to Get on their knees. They need to repent of that. They need to ask you to help them by your grace live with awareness and resistance, trusting in you because you have the power to do it. Father, maybe today we just need to, we just need to worship you. 
Father, we need to lift our voices in praise and honor that the God of all grace has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And the one who called us will finish what he started. Father, maybe today our hearts just need to be awakened with a new and fresh sense of who you are and how great your grace is in our lives. God, I don't know exactly what you want to do in in each of our hearts today. But Father, I just pray the next few moments we would be obedient. We would respond in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.